Yes. The question is, when we speak about rebirth, are we talking about rebirth after death, or rebirth in the sense that we are reborn in each moment? Speaking about after death. Of course, we get into a very important and difficult question, which is what reincarnates, what goes on from lifetime to lifetime, but that's not the topic for the moment. She's confused, and if you could clarify a little bit further uh, the difference or relationship between clear light mind and the mental continuum. When we look at the mental continuum, we need to specify something that is going to be present in every single moment, without a beginning and without an end. And so if we think in terms of one particular lifetime, then we have many different levels of mental activity, and we have many different levels of body, in terms of gross body, energy, and so on. And if we analyze it in one lifetime, then we find, for instance, that there is nothing which remains unchanged throughout our lifetime in terms of these gross levels. None of the cells of our body are the same as what we had in the past, certainly not what we had as a baby, and our brain is certainly not the same. The cells of the brains, our thoughts are not the same, understanding is not the same, emotions, etc. Nothing has remained the same. And if we consider the example of deep sleep and the example of being unconscious or under an anesthesia, then we find that we have gross levels of consciousness, etc., before each of these periods and after each of these periods, and they haven't continued during these periods. We didn't see anything while we were under an anesthesia or unconscious or asleep. Those things didn't continue. So there must be something more subtle underlying our grosser levels of consciousness that provides the continuity. Otherwise, how could there be any continuity? And if we extend this analogy to death, then likewise at death, it's even more removed from the grosser and even the more subtle aspects of the mind and the body. And as we have seen this morning, that there are grosser levels of mind and so on and experience which will follow after that moment or period of death. So there must be a subtlest level of mental activity which provides the continuity from lifetime to lifetime and which is uh, manifest at the moment or period of death. And that's known as the clear light level. And this is a type of mental activity which retains its essential nature. It's not like uh, the cells of our body being replaced by something similar but quite different. Rather, it's something which uh, remains stable. That's what I mean by retaining its essential nature. And so when we speak of the mental continuum, we can speak in terms of the continuum of grosser states and subtler states and so on, going on from moment to moment, changing, but also we can speak in terms of a subtlest level which is underlying that whole thing.
And the mental continuum, we could say, is the combination of the two of them, but what really provides the continuity and is there every single moment is this subtlest, clear-like mind. That subtlest level of mind isn't always manifest, though. Manifest in the sense of active and actively taking objects. When the grosser levels of mind are active, then that subtlest level mind is inactive, but it's present. And then, of course, there are many different interpretations and explanations of what manifest and unmanifest mean and what exactly is going on here. So yeah. there's a big discussion of that in many different interpretations. Also, when we speak of this continuum or the clear light mind, then in general, when we speak about mind, we're talking about mental activity. We're not talking about the organ that does this, whether it's a material or immaterial thing. We're talking about mental activity itself. And this mental activity can be described from two points of view. So we can describe it from the point of view of experience, subjective experience. Right? So that's usually the mental side of it. And we can describe it from the point of view of the physical side, which is dealing, speaking, on a very subtle level of the energy. Right? We're not talking about the grosser levels of the chemical interactions and electrical interactions within the brain. We're talking on a much more subtle level. Energy. If you speak on a grosser level with the brain, you can describe a mental event from a subjective, experiential point of view or from the point of view of the chemical and electrical things that are going on in the brain. One more thing. So that subtlest energy, which is another way of looking at the clear light mind, is also something that has a broken continuity. So the clear light mind, which is individual, each of us, subjective, we're not talking about some universal mind, there's no such thing from the Buddhist point of view. And so the individual clear light mind and the individual continuum of the subtlest energy, energy wind, this is uh, going to provide the continuity not only within the samsaric situation, which has no beginning, but also it continues through liberation and enlightenment. As a Buddha, we also, what we will have are these further continuum of the clear light mind and the subtlest energy. Okay, any other question? Yes. So, you have this doubt. You say on one side that when the result is present, the cause has ceased. But still, you say that there's some aftermath aftermath of any karmic action. So how do we match those two things? That's a very complex question. There are many, many different types of causes which are specified in the Buddhist analysis. In one list, there are 20 different types of causes which are analyzed, like for example, example in the Abhidharma text of Asanga. So there are some causes which are present at the time of the result and some that are not. For instance, the elements that make up my body are a cause of my body, but they are present at the same time as my body. So when we speak in terms of an obtaining cause, like the seed giving rise to the sprout, then an obtaining cause ceases to exist when it gives the result. Now, there is a different type of cause 
which is known as a natal source. And the example would be, for instance, the womb of a mother giving birth to a baby. Right? That's the source of the birth of the baby. But the womb of the mother continues to exist after the baby has been born and could give rise to more babies. Another example would be an oven and a loaf of bread. Okay, now, when we speak about karmic tendencies, remember this is also translated as the word seed, but I would avoid the word seed because it's a little bit confusing, a little bit too material because uh, these karmic tendencies are not material. The karmic tendencies are both the obtaining cause of the result as well as the natal source of the result. And the reason why this is significant, and your question brings this up, which is an excellent question, is that a karmic tendency can give rise to more than one result. The example that's given in the text, for instance, is somebody called a monk a jackass and was reborn as a jackass 500 times. There's a jackass or a monkey. I mean, we don't call people monkeys so much. We call them jackasses, at least in English. So, <laughs> so one karmic tendency can give rise to many results, and many karmic tendencies together can give rise to one result. This is one of the principles of karma. So if we talk about a karmic seed, a karmic tendency, which of course is going on from moment to moment to moment, then when it gives rise to one ripening, if it has the potential to give rise to many, then the aspect of it which is an obtaining cause for that result is finished. However, the aspect of it, the larger aspects of it, of being a natal source to give rise to more, that will continue, and that will exist at the same time as the ripening of the first result. And when this karmic tendency has finished giving rise to all the results that it has the potential to give rise to, then it will cease to uh, exist both as an obtaining course and as a natal source. So, I'm sorry, that was a complicated answer. uh, (laughs) You asked a question that uh, is not very simple. One item can serve as many different types of cause or something else. In fact, it can serve as many different types of causes for many different types of results. So it becomes quite complex. So the full understanding of cause and effect, particularly in terms of karma, is always explained as being the most complex and most difficult thing to understand in its entirety. Only a Buddha understands it fully. Why? Because when we talk about the causal nexus or connection of things... Everything that changes is causally connected. You know, going back beginningless time to endless time, everything is somehow causally interconnected. So only the omniscient mind of a Buddha can see all the connections. We were discussing the demonstration or proof of why mental activity. <laughs> There's no beginning and no end. So, of course, there were past lives and there will be future lives. And the type of life, life form, in each individual rebirth is, of course, going to be different. 
This is the gross level, of course, the subtlest level of energy, mental activity, clear light activity will continue. But the form of the rebirth and the type of ability of the mental activity, you know, the mental activity of a worm is not as strong as the mental activity and and abilities of a human brain, obviously. And the various types of habits that are associated with different life forms. When we're happy, are we going to wag our tail or are we going to express it in a different way? And all of that is going to be influenced by karma. In other words, by what type of behavior we've had and the karmic aftermath that is left after those actions. So, there is no permanent identity of me. Identity here being in terms of identifying with a specific lifetime that we have. That's different from individuality. We retain our individuality. I don't become you. That's different from individuality. We retain our individuality. I don't become you. But I don't have a permanent identity as a Mexican, as a uh, German, as a human being, as a chicken, as a male, as a female. Therefore, I could experience a rebirth in any type of form. All depends on how I act. Now I have a precious human rebirth. I'm not a chicken. I'm not (laughs) starving to death. For most of us, I'm not severely handicapped. I'm not in a situation in which no Buddhist spiritual teachings are available or it's against the law and forbidden. And so we have the meditations in the initial scope of the precious human rebirth, which only makes sense if we consider that there's an enormous amount of other possibilities of what we could be in this lifetime, and given all the type of karmic potentials that we have, then, as one of my teachers, Geshe Nawantarga, used to say, it's best for us to consider ourselves on a brief vacation from the lower realms. And our vacation time is almost over. (laughs) So, while we're on this short vacation, don't just spend your time taking photos of the human realm, and that's it. But we need to take the full advantage of having precious human rebirth. And what is the biggest advantage or benefit of being a human being? It's having intelligence discriminating awareness, to be able to discriminate between what is beneficial to practice and what is detrimental to practice, what's better to avoid. Only as a human being do we have that discriminating awareness to know that. And death is going to come at any time. So if we don't have firm conviction that there's going to be a next life after death, then, okay, death, you know, comes and that's the end, it's finished. So it's not so significant to have death awareness. So we take very seriously the fact that I have this incredible opportunity and this incredible apparatus of a precious human rebirth, and it's going to end for sure, and I don't know when, and then I'm going to continue. And so the question is, then what? If we think in terms of beginningless and endless mental continuum, the amount of time in this lifetime is very, very short. 
I mean, even if we think just in terms of the lifetime of this universe, from the Big Bang until the universe expands to extinction or contracts to extinction, every few years the scientists change their minds about which, but this human lifetime that's nothing. So, so short. Therefore, rationally, reasonably, there's far more time after this precious human rebirth than during it. It makes sense to have a bigger concern about that incredibly longer period of time afterwards than just our attention to this short period of this lifetime. Sure, the rest of this lifetime is part of what has yet to come. So we have to pay a little bit of attention to it as well. But the whole point of this initial scope is to have our major attention and interest be on future lives. So now I think you start to appreciate real thing Dharma. We are convinced of rebirth. And if we are convinced of it, now we have to really take it quite seriously. Then the preciousness of this present human life that we have stands out enormously much more. How incredible that I have this opportunity now, these freedoms, to actually work on myself, to try to improve my conditions, put it in the simplest terms. And if I really appreciate this precious human rebirth, what do I want in the future? If I want to be able to have more of them. So, we have the teachings on safe direction. That if we go in this safe direction of Buddha Sangha, that means the safe direction of the true stoppings on my mental continuum. Haven't happened yet. The true stoppings and the true pathway minds that will be there, I haven't developed them yet. But if I go in that direction, then that will protect me from worse reverse states because I really don't want them. I dread that. So, to actually go in that direction and achieve these true stoppings and true pathway minds, I'm going to need a precious human rebirth more and more and more. Chances are I'm not going to achieve these true stoppings and true pathway minds in this lifetime. So, I'd better ensure that I continue to have these precious human lives so that I can continue to go in this safe direction. When we read in the Lamrim, that here we're aiming for one of the better rebirth states, either as a human or as a, one of the gods, then we have to understand why that's stated that way, if the precious human life is so important. This ties together with uh, a very complex point in a text which is studied uh, called Abhisamaya Alankara, a filigree or ornament of realizations, Maitreya. And here we have one point, which is a list of what's called the 20 Sanghas. Sangha, meaning the Arya Sangha. So, among these various levels of concentration, these are often discussed in terms of, you may have heard of them, the dhyanas, the various dhyanas, these levels of mental stability. That's how I uh, explain it. And these different levels correspond to different levels of God realms. If we become attached to any of these states of mental stability, then we can be, we will be reborn in the God realm that corresponds to it and have strong instincts to achieve that type of mental stability again. Therefore, if we are reborn in one of these God realms, 
it will be theoretically possible to, again, within this God realm, to develop this level of mental stability, which would enable us, if we built up other instincts from you know, a huge amount of other practice, attain a state of an Arya from that level of mind. It's because of that that we speak in terms of aiming for a better rebirth as either a human or as one of these gods. Not just because the gods have a wonderful time and a lot of pleasure. But the point is that when we think in terms of safe direction, we're aiming for this Arya state and beyond, true stoppings and true pathway minds, then, although it might be theoretically possible to achieve that from a god rebirth, so it's included here, we're really aiming for a precious human rebirth because that's going to be the easiest for achieving the Aryan state, the oh. most conducive. So the whole aim for a better rebirth is not at all a non-Buddhist aim for going to a paradise or heaven, but is an aim that is Buddhist. In other words, we want to be able to continue to have a basis, a working basis from which we can achieve liberation and enlightenment. So then, the next step is, how do I achieve a precious human rebirth in future lives? This brings us to the whole discussion of karma, this topic in the initial scope. And to really do something about precious human rebirths, for achieving it, we need to refrain from acting destructively and act constructively instead. So, what do we need to be convinced of for this? Right? I mean, I could be, you know, oh, I'm really interested in getting a precious human rebirth in the future, but don't ask me to stop acting destructively. So we have to be convinced, and this is a difficult one, that destructive behavior leads to unhappiness, ripens in unhappiness, and constructive behavior ripens in happiness. Do you ever ask yourself why? If we were really convinced that acting destructively resulted in unhappiness and misery and suffering, we wouldn't act destructively. We're not really convinced. And once we're convinced, then we have to also be convinced of a mechanism that would allow for uh, the ripening of this unhappiness or happiness over an interval of many lifetimes. In other words, there's a big interval between when we act destructively and when it actually ripens. So that, again, gets us into endless mental continuum. So this we'll discuss after the coffee break. But I hope you're appreciating how profound this initial scope is and how profound our understanding needs to be in order to really be someone of initial scope. This is not easy. This is the real thing, darling.